One of those things is to clarify something that you who notice small details might have noticed on the back of your bulletin this morning where we list our church staff and officers. You see among the name of the elders, Blake Bronner is no longer listed there, and I wanted to explain to you the reason for that. Blake came onto the session of our church at the same time that I did in 2007 and served for six year, over six years, I guess, with our session. And, and uh, Blake is a wonderful, fabulous elder for our church. And Blake just recently, I guess just this past week, rolled off of our session, which, which uh, means that he's not resigned from being an elder, and he's not resigned from our church. Blake has simply rolled off of our session from serving on our session actively for a season. Blake is still an elder. He always will be. He can't help it. It's just who God has made him to be. And those of you who know Blake know that he's going to be interested in you. He's going to care for you. He's going to want to know how the Lord is at work in your life and and what good Blake as an elder might be able to do for you. So Blake will always be an elder. He just won't serve on our session actively for the coming season. And Lord willing, I hope that he will again. And and I see he's not here this morning. His family must be elsewhere this morning, but I was hoping he would be here this morning so he could hear me say, I love him and I hope that he will serve again with us. Blake is a, a fabulous elder. And I hope that when you see him, you'll give him your thanks for a wonderful service to our church for six years as he served with us. Lord willing, he will again. So now you know why his name is not there on the back of the bulletin. But you'll see him again, plenty. Uh, This morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 19. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And before we read it, I'll make a couple of comments about it. This is to take us back to where we we were sermon-wise before the holiday season began to set in. If you remember, I preached a couple of sermons, one of those being on the purpose of the church. In other words, why does the church as a whole exist? What's the purpose of it? And we saw there from various scriptures, mainly in Ephesians, that the church exists in order to be the presence of God on earth. That's what the church is. We saw that it's a stabilizing presence. It was, it was Paul's metaphor of a building is what the church is. And we saw that it's a reconciling presence. Paul's metaphor of the church being a body of, of various parts that are unified and reconciled together. We saw as well that the church is a praising presence. It's the bride of Christ that brings praise to the bridegroom. And then we saw the mission of the church. We talked about what is the church to do as the the presence of God on earth, what is it supposed to do? And we saw from Matthew 28 that the church is to proclaim the coming kingdom of God by persuading doubt with truth, by marking belief with grace, and by increasing faith with instruction. These various things that we saw that the church is to be about doing. And I referred as well then to the vision of a particular church. How is a church to do those things, because every church is different. Every church has a different context, different gifts and abilities and opportunities. So how are we as a church to go about doing these things that every Bible-believing church is to do by virtue of its DNA? Now, we've been taking in these surveys from you over the past weeks, and 
many of you have sent, filled in and sent in these surveys for us, and I've really appreciated that. That's been a lot of fun to read and see how, how you are thinking and engaging with the ministry of our church and how you see and understand things, and, and, and you have thoughts that I would have never had. And, and it's really helpful to me and to our session as well. In fact, this evening, as John mentioned, we'll, at, at School of Life and Doctrine, we'll kind of focus on that and start to talk about some of the highlights that have come out of those surveys. One of those highlights to me came from a friend who offered a, a very gentle but strong word of wisdom that was so helpful. He said, as you, and I kind of paraphrase, he said, as you consider the question of vision, be careful that you don't wander far from the confessional essentials of what a church is supposed to be about. He said, there are personal preferences and then there are biblical imperatives. So let's be careful to keep those clear. I totally agree. That was, that was wonderful advice and, and a very helpful clarification for us. And so I'm actually going to begin a topical series of sermons for us on the subject of imperatives, the subject of biblical non-negotiables, things that have really always defined New St. Peter's as a church. These things are not new to us, but Lord willing, they always will define us. And in our kind of reorienting season in which we are, we need together to not assume these things, but to declare them together. And to say these are the imperatives that we are about. We can't negotiate on these things. These are true, and they define us. And there's kind of a general trajectory of them that that kind of follows this course. Scripture, justification, sanctification, and glorification. You could call it the ification series if you wanted to. Those big theological words. Uh, Kind of a general trajectory of things, but there are lots of other important imperatives that exist among these things that that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And so this morning I want to begin with Psalm 19. It's a a psalm that C.S. Lewis called the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And so we're going to read this together and take a look at it. And you young Christians, young disciples, young theologians, as you listen to this psalm, think about it this way. Besides your parents telling you about God, or, or even besides you hearing one of your pastors speak to you about God, how do you know God? How do you know God? That's what we hear as we read Psalm 19. And so, if I may ask you, will you stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression." Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would grant to us eyes to see your word. Give us hearts that understand and believe your good news in this, your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So it was the great crisis of the Exodus. You heard about it moments ago as Tyler read the Old Testament reading of Scripture. God had led His people out of Egypt. He had led the Israelites out of bondage and slavery where they had been for hundreds of years. He had led them through the Red Sea and out into the desert. God had led them out. And then He made a dinner invitation. He invited Moses and and a few other men, and the 70 elders of Israel, 74 men in all, up to the mountain, and they went, and the writer tells us, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine that dinner invitation? These men sitting there, I mean, who knows what they ate? What they ate probably doesn't really matter because they were eating in the presence of God Himself. There He was. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. And then those men were dismissed except for Moses who remained on the mountain and went on up the mountain to receive God instruction from God for 40 days. And there he was for that long period. And while he was there, of course, you know the story, the people, well, they grew impatient. And they requested, Moses isn't coming back. We don't know where this man is, and he may not come back at all. So Aaron and the priests, will you just give us a God that we can see, that we can, can know is here with us? Give us a God. And so they did. The people turned to a golden idol, and then Moses came down. And all kinds of chaos ensued after that, the people having turned away from God. But Moses interceded. And Moses said something that to me is very striking. I'm sure it is to you as well. Moses said to God, Lord, if you can't forgive their sin from turning away from you, then blame me. Strike my name out of your book of life. Put it all on my shoulders, God. If you can't forgive them, then blame me. And the Lord said, No, Moses, look, you take these people up to the land that I told you to go to, but I'm not going with them. I'm not going to go with these people. And it was a disastrous word, as Moses tells us to the people. They were in despair, wondering, if God doesn't go with us, then how will we live? And, and so again, Moses interceded and he said, Lord, you've told me, I know you, Moses, by name. You've found favor in my sight. And Lord, if this is true, if you know me by name, if, if I found favor in your sight, then for that reason, come with us. 
and God relents. Because of one man, God will do good for many. Moses was a type of Christ. You know that Moses foreshadowed the coming of Christ. Because of one man, God would do good for the many. And so, in order to confirm God's presence with them, Moses makes a a very bold request. He says to them, show me your glory. Lord, please show me your glory. I want to see it. In other words, if I can't see your glory, Lord, then my life has no meaning. If I can't confirm your presence by seeing you, then I don't know what to do. Show me your glory. Show me your kavod, Moses said, your, your weight, your substance. Show me your significance. And that's meaningful to us because to understand ourselves, even today, we must understand the weightiness of God. We must see God in order to know ourselves, to have any sense of significance or meaning, to know why we're here. We must know the glory of God. We must. It's one of the greatest acts of love from God to us to show us His glory, to glorify His name. It's kind of like a father to a child. A father could say, well, you know, you're my child, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of back away and just let you do your own thing. And if you need some help, come and find me. But otherwise, I'm just going to kind of leave you with your freedom. No, a loving father doesn't do that. A father comes into the life of their child to show their child their weightiness, their significance, their glory, as it were, so a child will know where they've come from. In the same way, God... It's one of the most loving things he can do to us is to show us his glory. And so the Lord allowed Moses' request. He put him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by. This is an imperative, defining feature of the church. Not just this church, but of the church as a whole. God makes himself known. God makes himself known. You know, there are all... all, of number of reasons why we don't, or not reasons why we do meet here in the theater on Sunday mornings. You don't come here to meet as a social club, although there's plenty of, hopefully, good social activity going on among us as we greet one another and enjoy our, our presence together. But you don't meet here as a social club. You don't come here to meet for the good music, although Lord willing, the music is good and, and, and moving to you and you enjoy it, whatever your preference of style and music may be. But you don't come for the music. You don't come to hear a certain speaker either. I know that. I mean, there may be a variety of preachers among us and you don't come because you don't tell your friends, well, the speaker's really good, so just come hear the speaker. You shouldn't. That's not a reason to come to church. And you don't come to meet here together in this place because of the aesthetic value either, dare I say. I mean, we sit in cushioned seats in a cavern here in the theater, and you never know what's going to be behind us. You don't tell your friends, come to my church with me to see the beautiful stained glass windows. I know you don't do that. No, there's one reason why we meet together. You come here together because God has made himself known. That's why you come here. You come to meet and see the glory of the living God through His Word and worship. God has made Himself known. He did it for Moses. And hundreds of years later, again, He did it for David. David writes of it in this psalm. God still makes Himself known by the works of His hands and by the words of His mouth, so that His people might follow His path. 
God makes himself known by the works of his hands. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims the work of his hands. Theologians break this thing down into a couple of categories. This is it's called revelation. It's God's self-revelation of himself, his making himself known. And theologians call this two things. For one, there's general revelation. And for two, there's special revelation. General and special. And both are critical to our knowing God. Both of them are introduced in this psalm. And both are foundational to who we are as a church. They are biblical imperative. They are non-negotiable. They simply are. The general revelation is the expression of God's self-revelation through the work of His hands. Special revelation is God's self-revelation through the words of His mouth, literally the Bible. Now, David was an interesting character in writing this psalm. I mean, you know something about David? He was a fascinating person, really. He was the youngest of a of a herd of boys in his family. And he was a shepherd, and he was a musician, he was a warrior, he was an administrator, he was many things, and he was also an observer of nature. And so David tells us some things about nature, and he says general revelation is several things. For one, it's continuous. He said day after day and night after night, Day after day and night after night, since the moment of creation until now and forever into the future, general revelation continually proclaims the glory of God. It's continuous. He also says that it's abundant. It pours out speech. Literally like a gushing spring, gushing forth with volumes of water. It's abundant. And he says as well that general revelation is universal. What does he say about that? There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard through general revelation. It doesn't matter what language you speak, or what culture you live in, or what country you grew up in. There is no language in which it's not heard, this general revelation. This is why Francis Schaeffer, that old Presbyterian theologian, could say that God is there and He's not silent, because His voice is heard in every language. Paul explains some of this in in Romans chapter 10 where he quotes from Psalm 19. Paul there has been writing about the Jews and and their call to believe the gospel. And and he expands that saying that it's for everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But they need to hear. Someone needs to go and preach to them. Beautiful are the feet who bring good news. Someone needs to go and speak to them. And And he explains, he says... Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But have they not heard already? Indeed, he says, they have. For, and here's Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In other words, Paul says, they already know that God is there. Now go and tell them more. You must. Everyone knows that God is there. But general revelation expresses only certain parts of God and and not others. It doesn't testify to God's justice or His mercy or His love or His anger or goodness or grace or compassion. General revelation won't tell you those things. Rather, 
from Romans 1. Again, Paul loves these things, and he writes this. He says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Therefore, men are without excuse. Paul says, general revelation makes God known. It's enough that men should know His divine nature at the very least. Many of you know that I enjoy monarch butterflies. I don't, I don't have any particular love of butterflies in general, but monarchs especially are fascinating to me. They pass right through the state of Texas. And every Texan, if you love blue bonnets, you should love monarch butterflies. They're fascinating to me as a picture of God's divine nature. Two times a year they pass through our neighborhood. And our family has kind of a twice a year family project of, of uh, collecting monarch butterfly caterpillars and cultivating them and setting them free. It's a fascinating thing to watch. It's amazing. They travel from right now in central Mexico down near Mexico City. It's where they all are. And soon, within a couple of months, they will take off and fly. These are tiny creatures. I mean, they might weigh two one-hundredths of an ounce. They're not hardy birds or something to migrate. They're tiny creatures. And they will migrate from central Mexico all the way to Canada, and they have to pass through Texas to get there. And they're looking for one plant, a milkweed plant, which has toxic poison inside of it. And there they will lay their eggs on the leaves, and these teeny tiny pinhead eggs will hatch a caterpillar, and within a few weeks that caterpillar will turn into a monarch butterfly, and it will lift off and head for Canada. It doesn't have a mom or dad to follow. It has no one to tell it where it ought to go. It just knows. How does it know? It's got some navigation system built into it by its creator that tells it, it's springtime, you need to go north to Canada. Likewise, the next generation, who will have never made this trip before, knows it's fall, it's time for you to head to Mexico. And that's where they go. How does it happen? How can it possibly happen other than divine nature? We don't live in a random world. Before I went to seminary, I was an engineer in Houston, Texas, and we, in our uh, department, got a new manager one time. He was a man, his name was Joe Bros, and he was uh, a brilliant man. He, he had no business being the manager of our particular department, frankly. He was a Ph.D. in physics. He had come from a White House fellowship in Washington, D.C. He had amazing people skills and business skills. He was utterly brilliant. One day I was in his office to ask him about something, and I was leaving the office, and he stopped me, and he said, Colin, do you know that mathematicians are writing equations to define the moving shape of clouds? No, Joe, I didn't know that. And he pulled me back into the office to explain this thing. He said, yeah, you know, you can define a circle, a geometric shape with an equation, and that's fairly simple for an engineer to do. It's not complicated. But he said, you know, a cloud... It's moving through the sky, always changing shapes. And you don't know what shape it's going to take on. Even if you do, it's not a normal geometric shape. But he said, mathematicians are writing equations to explain and define the shape of clouds as they move. He said it's called chaos theory. Okay, I didn't know that, Joe. And he went on to explain it. He said, you know, there's really no such thing as chaos. 
even the most brilliant among us recognize that we don't live in a random world. We live in a world that's defined by the divine nature of God. General, general revelation shows us as well the eternal power of God, as Paul told us. David writes in this psalm that in the heavens God has set a tent for the sun. I think what he means poetically there is the night sky. When the sun recedes behind the earth, the night sky is like a tent where the sun can reside for the night. It's just a poetic expression. But the picture is this powerful sun moving its course across the sky from beginning to end every day, every day, every day, every day for all eternity. This powerful sun. And if the sun is strong, then God is stronger because he put it there. And David says, if nothing is hidden from the sun and its heat, then nothing's hidden from God himself. The sun proclaims the extent and the penetration of God's rule. Even over our power of reasoning. Do you know that? You know, theologians, again, have some terms. They talk about apologetics as the defense of the Christian faith, explaining the Christian faith to a skeptical mind. There are a couple of approaches to doing that. One of them is what theologians call the evidentialist approach. That is, we say to a skeptical person, just look at the evidence out here around you and see that it's most likely, it's probable that God must exist because you see the evidence. And that's fine and good. There's a place for doing that. But then there's another approach to it called presuppositionalism. It's a big word, I know. A presuppositionalist says you are presupposing that something is true and without God, you can't do that. So a number of years ago, there was a a debate between a a Christian philosopher, his name was Greg Bonson, and uh, a non-Christian, an unbelieving philosopher, his name was Gordon Stein. It was out at the University of California, Berkeley. I heard a tape recording of the debate. It was fascinating. They were debating the existence of God. And this, this uh, unbelieving philosopher made kind of the typical statements. He said, you know, if an all-powerful God does exist, then there's no such thing as evil. So, Dr. Bonson, you got to explain evil to me because if your God exists, then evil, evil can't possibly exist because what good, powerful God would allow for evil to exist? And Dr. Bonson said to him, you know, actually, if God does not exist, then neither does evil. He said, if God doesn't exist at all, then who are you to tell me what's evil? Evil is just your own construction. It's what you define it to be. And who are you? God. And so the conversation went on like this, and and Stein would make some statement of of fact, supposedly, about the non-existence of God. And Bonson would then say, but you can't say that, because if God doesn't exist, then you can't suppose that that is true, whatever it is that you're saying. And Bonson finally said, you know, Dr. Stein, you are like a child who wants to slap his father in the face, but he has to climb up into his lap to reach it. The next morning in the Cal Berkeley newspaper, campus newspaper, the headline was, God wins. So the world has such marvelous beauty. The stars, they're sparkling. The the sun is shining. The butterflies are flitting and all is right right? Not exactly. It's not quite that simple, is it? And so David, recognizing there's a problem, we are broken people living in a broken world, he continues the psalm with special revelation. God makes himself known by the words of his mouth. There's a dramatic 
poetic shift that takes place from the first part of the psalm, the first six verses, into the seventh. Maybe you noticed it. Until now, God has not been named in the psalm. He has only been referred to by the general term El, God. The heavens proclaim the glory of God in verse 1. But now He's named, and David names Him repeatedly, the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. General revelation shows that God is there, and therefore we have no excuse. But special revelation names Him. It reveals the path that He calls us to walk. Special revelation, more specifically the Bible itself, tells us not only of God's name, but of His moral perfection. The law of the Lord is perfect. The Torah, the the general term for law, the Torah of God is perfect. You know, we have kind of a love-hate relationship with law. It's kind of how we are with, with rules and law. Some of us in our personalities are, are more judging types. I don't mean judgmental, but judging. You know, we kind of, some of us see the world as more black and white, right and wrong, and, and you can see this is right and this is wrong, so why would you do the wrong? You've got to do the right. So some of us kind of see the world in simple terms that way. Others, myself included, I will, I mean, I'm going to confess some things to you here. Others, like myself, are, are more perceiving of generalities in the world. It's not that we don't believe in right and wrong. It's just that we see there's more gray in the world than, than we might be comfortable admitting. And so we're not going to draw a hard line all the time between black and white necessarily. For example, I was at a Presbyterian meeting a little while back, and I'd been talking about these things with a friend. We'd been kind of laughing about uh, how we each are kind of perceiving of things and, and seeing a lot of gray in the world. Kind of laughing about that. And, and then we had a fresh cup of coffee in hand in the lobby of the church where the Presbyterian meeting was set. And we headed towards the sanctuary where everybody was meeting. And above the, sign, the door was a sign that said, No drinks allowed in the sanctuary. And we paused for just a moment. And then he followed me through the door into the sanctuary with a cup of coffee in hand. Now, we didn't go sit down. I didn't put it on the ground where we'd get kicked over. We stood in the back, and we were careful and all that. And I know the judging types among you are gasping for breath. The pastor just disobeyed the sign above the door. You know, you still can't bring drinks into this theater on Sunday morning. So now you perceiving types are gasping, saying, oh, I've got to hide my cup of coffee under my seat. No, you know, we all kind of approach and see the world in some different ways, but we tend to make the law far harsher than God intends. We often emphasize the weightiness of our imperfection rather than the goodness and the safety of the path that it shows. How does David, after all, describe the law in verse 7 and following? What does he say about it? He says, it's perfect. It's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean, it's true. It's a path of safety, in other words. It's a path of goodness and blessing. It's a path, may I say it, of love. How can the law be good and loving? I mean, you just see what it does. He he says more here. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I mean, who would not want those things? 
It's a law of safety from a heart of love. It makes me think of, of a time not too long ago when my family was out for dinner on a Friday night, I guess, and we saw that a blockbuster video store was closing, as they have, and they were having a fire sale of all their videos. And so we thought, well, we'll go in there and see if we can find a good movie, you know, DVD for cheap. And so we went and looked around, and we're kind of wandering around the aisles, and we began to realize that the next aisles I could see ahead are just full of the leftover stuff, which all just happened to be raunchy, horror, sort of blood and guts, just kind of nasty stuff. And I realized, looking at my kids and looking down the aisle, and I realized, no. And I said, no, guys, stop. We, that aisle's not for us. Let's go back that way. That's not our place. It's not a good place for us. That's what the law does. The law of God doesn't call us to be legalistic. It calls us, rather, to recognize the merciful love of our Father. His words are worth more than gold. They're sweeter than honey because of the merciful love that they express. You see it in verse 11. What what does David say? By your words, your servant is warned. Now, recognize the poetic parallelism here between verse 11 and what follows it and stepping back to verse 6 and the sun. Do you recognize... Nothing is hidden from the sun's heat. And likewise, nothing is hidden from the wisdom of the law. By your words, your servant is warned. David was an observer of nature. He was a lover of God. He had seen God in his works and in his words. He'd confirmed his presence. And now how does he respond? What does he say? O Lord, conform me to your presence. The knowledge of you is a warning to me. By what errors have I conflicted with your presence? I can't even discern them. They're hidden from me. I can't see them. And not only that, but keep me from presumptuous sins. In other words, sometimes I know what's right and wrong, and yet I choose to do the wrong anyway. Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins. Keep me from willfully choosing to leave the path, which is what I will do. God, have mercy on me. Declare me to be innocent. Call me blameless. And then with words that preachers frequently use preceding a sermon, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Now those words were not really intended to precede preaching, although they're somewhat fitting. What David meant was, Lord, I know that my mouth doesn't reflect the glory of God. I know that my heart doesn't conform to His perfection. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be so. But who's to make them so? O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Only the merciful love of the Father can offer both a refuge and a champion to provide what His child must have. The works of His hands and the words of His mouth make Him known, but what do they lead us to see? The rock, the Redeemer on the cross, a refuge and a champion for the one who cannot stand up without it. In Seoul, Korea, there is a pastor who, his name is Lee, Pastor Lee, and and a few years ago, he recognized a possible solution to a vast problem in this huge city of Seoul. Very frequently, babies are abandoned in that city. 
abandoned for various reasons, whether they have a physical deformity or because of the cultural standards, an unmarried mother is not acceptable in the culture, and so a baby is just abandoned, or because of poverty, a mother or a father can't care for the child, and so they abandon the child. Lots of abandoned babies, and Pastor Lee realized at his orphanage, he could, could build a drop box, which he did, to the outside of the sidewalk, a drop box, where someone on the outside could simply open the box, place their unwanted baby in the box, and close the box. And when they close the box, a bell rings so that the staff inside knows the baby's in the box. And they take that baby, and they he's got, got dozens and dozens of babies who otherwise would have been left on the street to die. And in being interviewed and telling his story about this, Pastor Lee said that he came to the point of realizing as a pastor, he said, I had to say, God, I will die for these children. I'm willing to die for these children. They are unwanted and abandoned. Oh, God, I will die for these children. Bring them to me and I'll give them my life. The gospel is a drop box where you must go. It is a refuge where a champion has said, Father, I will die for these children. That's what it is. And God to that end has made himself known. Whatever the church is, whatever this church will be, Lord willing, in coming years, it must stand on that truth. By the works of his hands, by the words of his mouth, God proclaims himself to be your refuge and your redemption. Thanks be to God. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grant to us again eyes to see, give us hearts to believe these good words that we might trust that you, oh God, are our rock and our redeemer, that you have called us to yourself, that you have made yourself known And that because in your Son you have loved us with his very life, we have life and hope and joy in him. To the glory of his name we pray. Amen.